Hello and welcome to Let's Shoot Together, a photography podcast by me, Anna Constine, from Studio Gently. I'm a newly Edinburgh-based branding photographer working with kind and creative kin across the UK, and this podcast is for gentle photographers everywhere. If you're looking to jump into brand photography or you're a fellow brand photographer looking for tips, this podcast is for you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back everybody. I'm just popping in quickly to let you know that this is a re-release from season one ahead of the arrival of season two next week. In case you missed it, I also shared an episode all about what's coming for season two this week. So be sure to go back and listen if you haven't already. On my story this week, I asked if you would rather hear about photography mistakes that I have made or business mistakes that I have made in my past. To those of you who messaged saying that you would like to hear both of them, don't worry, because you will be. Today though, the majority of you wanted to hear about my photography mistakes first. So, here you go. This idea came about as one of the quickest ones when I wrote in my first ever dreaming session for this podcast. I actually felt a bit nervous at the idea. After all, aren't we meant to pretend that we've been perfect all along and don't make any mistakes even now? I realised though that I would love to hear other photographers talking about what they have or do still struggle with and sharing my mistakes will hopefully help you avoid them yourself. Mistakes are the ultimate teachers. Our brains learn things by having as many sticky moments that help memories bind to us as possible. This is the way that I like to think about it. So Googling, for example, Googling something produces almost no sticky moments, there's no friction. So we tend to remember facts from Google searches, much less from ones that we have had emotive, intense, maybe embarrassing experiences around. Mistakes are therefore the perfect recipe for making great memories that will stick with us in the future. I'm officially taking one for the team today. Not just to tell you what to avoid, but also to remind you that mistakes equal those sticky moments, which equal unforgettable memories, which equal great lessons. So without further ado, here are my photography mistakes just for this episode. I'm sure I'll be back with future ones, but here are the ones that I thought of first today. Okay, I told you they were coming, right? Our first one, I'm going to get done and dusted as soon as possible (laughs) because it came up in last week's episode, but I still want to share it with you and remind you of it now. Mistake one is very, very simple. It's not shooting landscape enough. I talked about it last week in relation to Instagram because photographing with largely Instagram in mind meant that I learned to favour and shoot mostly portrait images. So portrait images are larger on Instagram feeds, so because you're scrolling downwards versus horizontally, it means that portrait images appear to be larger as you scroll. So it made sense to make sure that I had more portrait photos than landscape ones if putting them on Instagram was my goal. But (laughs) 
it meant and it still means to this day that when I go to add landscape photos to my website for example which translates typically much better than portrait ones so I'm thinking of when I want to have a full width image landscape translate is better because otherwise you're scrolling through the same photo for ages you can't see the whole thing in one go sometimes that has a place i'm sure however most of the time that's just not something that i need ironically you now don't even need to worry air quotes about landscape photos being small on instagram because there are so many beautiful cropping apps that can cut a landscape photo into two portrait or square ones very very easily in fact i'm sure that they've been in existence for a very long time i think i only came across them last year though i would say the rest of the time you need to have a good mixture i still have to be so conscious of this now a lot of consciously reminding myself particularly for my personal work not so much business work because i tend to have a little bit more of a professional fully focused photographic head on my shoulders but the rest of the time I tend to just be going for my eye favours and because of a lot of time thinking about Instagram my eye naturally tends to be drawn to portrait orientation. Actually there are still times when I think landscape either looks better, works better, easier. Like I say, it can be helpful for if you are putting things on certain mediums, like a website. But many of you are not professional photographers, so you probably aren't going to have to put stuff on a website and think about that just yet. What you might want to be thinking about it for is things like, and I talked about them last week in particular, photo books. When you are making compilations of photos that you've taken, you might find that landscape photos are maybe even more helpful on creating a book. But one example I can think of that I really favour, landscape for, happened, came up the first time when I was a second shooter. So a second shooter is basically the assistant photographer at a wedding that my friend Hannah Barnes of Pip and Wolf shot. I found myself shooting on landscape, which is really interesting because I really hadn't especially at that point in my career, hadn't really favoured that orientation over the other. I just found that it helped capture more detail, more easily. So when you're doing group shots, it's a lot easier to get everyone into the frame versus having to back up and try and capture everyone in a portrait photo. I also really liked that you could capture movement a little bit more easily because again, people can move across the frame, but they're still in shot. And there's just something, I don't know, that just really felt appropriate and lovely about using landscape more. And when I went back through my shots, I was amazed at how many of them were landscape. Sometimes a subject doesn't work until you flip the orientation of your camera. So be sure to have a range that means you've got shots that will work wherever you want to use them. You might actually find yourself capturing something, trying to capture something, it's not working, you flip it onto landscape, flip it onto portrait, and all of a sudden it works great. Mistake number two, big one for me, <laughs> shooting on too low an f-stop. This has happened to me a lot because I just love me a low f-stop. If that sounds like Greek to you, an f-stop is the measure used for the lens opening, known as the aperture. A low f-stop means that the opening is nice and wide, letting more light in, 
and making the background of the shot nice and blurry. I say nice and blurry, <laughs> but honestly, sometimes it's not nice. <laughs> I used to think that blur was best, always best. And one I think is probably going to stay part of my style. A very shallow depth of field, aka the amount of your image that is in focus versus what will be blurred in the foreground and the background has major limitations. It's especially unhelpful when you are shooting things like product photography because you will need certain details and perhaps the text of labels or logos to be really, really crisp. Yes, it can look dreamy and interesting and be helpful in disguising a less than photogenic background as well, but variety is really important. I thought I just didn't resonate with sharp, nothing blurred at all photography until I saw one photographer's interior shots. And I wish I could remember who this was. It's not someone that I follow on Instagram. It might have been something I came across in a magazine maybe. But regardless, I saw that photographer's interior shots and I thought, my goodness, were they lovely. Don't forget too that if you really want that blur, it can actually be photoshopped in afterwards. But sadly, that's not doable in terms of doing the reverse. So correcting out of focus details or text. Mistake number three. For some reason, not trusting raw for ages, ages and absolutely ages. Maybe this was because I didn't know what raw meant, but I had heard of a JPEG. This was one of those photographers say that you should do this things that I didn't get my head around for a really long time. As a recap, raw is a file format and raw files are massive. <laughs> a JPEG, which is the most common image file that you will see alongside PNGs, might be between 500 kilobytes for a relatively good size and resolution and about two megabytes is probably the most common that you'll come across. A raw file, on the other hand, so I just had a look while writing this script for you, and on my camera, the raw files are anywhere between 28 megabytes and 47 megabytes. It's a very, very big difference. Raw files are so big because they capture so much more information. The most common benefit that you will be using a lot is that you're able to lighten and darken a raw file when editing much more than you could a JPEG, simply because it captures so much more information. If you're going to lighten or darken a JPEG, you have a very small window before you start to lose the details. So highlights, when you bring down a highlight, it will retain its details versus just becoming very blank while shadows will lighten without as much grainy distortion to a degree. Raw files are so helpful and I think nearly all professionals will tell you that they shoot on raw but it is surprising how long it took me to grasp while I was still learning. They are massive files and they will make your SD card fill much quicker than JPEGs but you're going to thank yourself big time in the editing process. If I were feeling more sentimental today, I would feel sad about all the photos I could have used if I hadn't been using manual mode while shooting with JPEG selected. You can rescue many a photo and it is definitely worth a bigger SD cards, trust me. Number four, not figuring out how to size 
styled properly. So I'm sticking to mainly shooting mistakes here, editing mistakes we can do another time if you're down, but I did want to give a shout out to formatting files while we're on the subject. It took me a while as a newbie photographer to realise that bigger wasn't always better because bigger usually means incompatible. Most places you will want to upload your photos have file size limitations. Most places that you're going to want to upload photos online have file size limits. Often it's up to no more than about five megabytes. I've seen two megabytes quite commonly, but five megabytes is the biggest that I can remember seeing just off the top of my head. But I have edited shots in my cloud, my iCloud, that are 18 megabytes. And yes, I did send those to one of my first ever clients, but thankfully I also sent smaller versions in that same project as well. It is very, very rare to need to upload full-size images. When I say full-size, I mean both in terms of dimensions, so how many pixels by how many pixels, and then also the bytes, so how many megabytes or kilobytes it might be. Clients can always ask you for larger images if they need, but for who knows why, I felt every client needed them full-size right from the start. Mistake number five is not switching up my lenses more. So for a long time, I had a personal and very unnecessary reluctance for really wide-angle lenses. I know, right, what did they ever do to me? Your equipment is not and never will be the be-all and end-all. But if you have access to different lenses, then by all means, go for some variety. On my current camera, I use a 50mm over anything else. But one of my client studios has a 24 to 105 millimeter zoom lens. And playing with that on the wide angle end of its range has been super, super fun. For a long time, I had a maybe unconscious thing around having a consistent style. And part of that was thinking that if I switched up my lenses, it wouldn't feel like me anymore. I've now accepted though, that no matter what I shoot or how I edit, friends will still tell me they recognise my most out there shots from just seeing them. It's happened many times that I have done a client shoot or personal shoots where the colours have been very different from what I've shot before. It's been of a very different setting that I would go for usually and I will still have a friend message me and say, oh my goodness, I could tell that was you. So probably switching my lenses is not going to change the foundations of my style as a photographer after all. Lenses are so much fun and I will talk to you about my kit and also my dream kit, another episode I'm sure, so stay tuned. Mistake number six, not taking photos of subjects that I thought I didn't like or from angles that I thought didn't work. So when you're first starting out, you will take a million shots from a million angles every time you want to take a photo. Certainly that's what I did. Gradually though, with experience and a sense of your preferences, it is easy to gravitate towards the same angles or subjects that you know and love. Losing that experimental approach that got you to find those angles in the first place. That's why shooting with another photographer is so valuable. And even when I am out shooting with my one-on-one -on -one tutorial clients, I will pay attention to what they are shooting in case they can see or frame something in a way that I haven't. Our tastes change with age and 
as I get older, there are more and more things I love to see in photography. A good example is that when starting out, I took mainly nature photos or pretty houses and towns. Whereas now I love shooting and seeing photos from concrete, inner city locations, all kinds of things that I just didn't used to feel the pull towards. That's what I meant last week about staying away from trends. I think it's important that we stay present with what we can see and capture in front of us rather than solely looking for subjects that we're only interested in at that moment in time because we think that they will translate well onto trends online. Number seven is that I previously have over relied on what I can do in Photoshop versus getting things right in the moment. One very obvious example is not cleaning a setup as thoroughly as I could have done, which means that when I do come to editing, it takes a little bit longer, whereas the time it takes just to clean things, move things, get things right in the moment usually pays off so that you're cleaning once, taking as many photos as you want, versus taking as many photos as you want and having to research every single one. I think it is a very easy and natural mistake to make, especially when you are training your eye to look out for those kinds of things. But I personally am a believer in giving yourself as little to do in the editing process as possible. So that means ideally shooting on manual mode because like I mentioned earlier, there's definitely limitations to how much you can push the light and the dark when editing your photos, even on raw, which can be corrected by using manual mode and making sure that things are clean, that they are straight arranged so that the angles are straight. That's very difficult to correct in certain photos. And in general, making it easy, making it super, super easy. Number eight is using manual mode when I shouldn't have used manual mode. I'm a big fan of manual mode. You will hear me talking about it a lot because it really liberated my photography and meant that I had agency over how an image will look as much control as possible versus letting the automatic mode be in charge of what an image will look like. But definite limitations and one of those limitations is that sometimes you are in scenarios where it's not practical to keep switching between different shutter speeds or maybe different apertures or maybe different ISOs while you are shooting. You need to stay in the moment and playing around with those things can take you out. A nice compromise is to use one of the partially automatic features on your camera. So there are settings on your camera that let you set just the ISO that let you set just the aperture, that let you set just the shutter speed. And you can pick one of those and know that one part of your image will be consistent and as you need it to be, and the rest of your camera will just take care of. While shooting in RAW gives you a bit more freedom because like I say, just to remind you, <laughs> RAW means that you have more flexibility when editing, so it doesn't matter as much if something is lighter or darker than you would like it. Also, linked to this is 
being too attentive of the details, technical details, versus being present with the subject. And I mean this primarily with portrait photography. It is much more common, I think, when you're learning photography to be very conscious and even over-conscious of making sure that that aperture setting is the one that you want, that the shutter speed is the one that you want, that the ISO is the one that you want, but it might mean that you're not interacting with or engaging with your subjects. And this is something that took me a long, long time. Now, one of my friends slash my flatmate needed some headshots done a couple of weeks ago. And we'd done some photos a couple of years ago when I had tried to take photos of him. And he said after our recent shoot that I had really improved and that I last time had just not been able to get the shot. I just hadn't been able to get him looking as comfortable and confident as he wanted to be and that will a hundred percent have been because I was too focused on those technical issues. I see it now as my job is less to direct them and more to make them comfortable. I tell lots of jokes, I ask very silly questions, I get them to stand up and shake their bodies, so shake their arms, shake their legs, lift their shoulders to their ears, squeeze, 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 and drop them. If you've ever been in a shoot with me, I have made you do that before. And do anything else that I think is going to ease them up. And then the technical stuff will look after itself. I think that's partly just experience because I know what my camera needs and I now know how to make people feel comfortable and feel comfortable myself. But it's definitely something that I wish someone had highlighted to me. So in conclusion, the goal of this episode wasn't just to make you avoid where I fluffed up in the past. In fact, that's really a byproduct. Instead, I hope this has encouraged you to see your mistakes as positives and that you don't have to be flawless to be amazing. If anything, trying to do so will only get in your way. If you do have any questions that you would like to be featured in my upcoming Q&A episode, please do send them my way or they may even become a full episode on their own. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe for more and leave a review on your favourite podcast platform so that more people can discover Let's Shoot Together. You can share this episode with the hashtag Let's Shoot Together and tag me on at Studio Gently so that I can repost you. I hope you're ready for season two next week and that you have good things ahead of you wherever and whenever you are. Take care and let's go shoot together.